Acts chapter 9 is where we are this morning. Let us run to our great God in prayer, and then we'll run to his great word. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. We give you thanks for who you are. That we're talking right now to the creator of the heavens and the earth. Our creator. You are the source of our life, Lord. You made me. You made us. And you became like us. To save us. To save us from our sins. To save us from death. You've given to us eternal life. A unity with you. A oneness with you. You have given us such hope for the future. You give us such hope for today. And above, above all of our prayers, all the things that are circulating in our minds and our hearts right now, Lord, I'm asking that you would reveal Jesus to us this morning. Let us see your son. Let us know him. Let us love him. Let us hear his words. Let us understand who he is, that we would grow and mature in our incredible Savior this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to cover just nine verses here in Acts chapter 9, so let's read through this, and we'll back up and discuss as always. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here we are in chapter 9, the book of Acts. This is going to be a familiar passage for the vast majority of us. This is a, a scene that is repeated three times in the book of Acts. Anything that's repeated in the word of God is always, it's always being lifted up. This is an important event. As we sit in the rest of the New Testament, this man is the author of 13 letters, 14 if he's also the author of the book of the letter to the Hebrews. Um, so most of us are very familiar with who Saul was, who he becomes as the Apostle Paul. We're familiar with this event. One of the interesting things to sit in here is just the timeline of events. So come up with a number in your head 
And how long do you think it's been since the first chapter of Acts? Since Jesus ascended to heaven there in chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has been sent the day of Pentecost. How long has it been until this event here where Paul is being introduced to Jesus? Got a number in your head? Three years. That's it. So already what we've journeyed through in the book of Acts as we sit in, in the gospel being preached there in Jerusalem and the Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It begins with 3,000 and then 5,000 and then multitudes. We're looking at the, the little snapshots that we have of the community where people are selling their goods. They're bringing everything to the apostles. They have everything in common. There's this community that's being built out of Jews that are looking to faith in Jesus Christ. In that community, there's the persecution is escalating, escalating to the point where Saul and others are making havoc of the church. And that, that word is like a bowl in the china closet. And the church is already scattered from Jerusalem. The apostles are remaining there in Jerusalem. Many believers, brothers and sisters, families are being dispersed because of persecution within three years of Jesus ascending to heaven. To me, I'm, I'm astonished at how quickly these events are transpiring. And already the damage that Paul has been doing to the church in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area, something tells me that he figures that he's already done a good job, that uh, whatever has been set into motion is being successful in regards to their, their being able to arrest those who are looking to faith in Jesus Christ, their ability to be able to cause believers to blaspheme the Lord's name, just sentencing some individuals to death. Paul's got to be looking at these events that they've been successful in Jerusalem because now he's going to the leadership there in Jerusalem and saying give to me letters of recommendation that I can take to Damascus to a foreign city and have the exact same effect that we're having here against the name of Jesus Christ that we would have that same effect against the name of Jesus in Damascus also. So whatever's going on in Damascus there's a pull for Paul to go there Clearly, we can look behind the scenes and say that Jesus is at work, moving in his life, directing him to go to this place. Paul is going for one agenda. The Lord has another agenda. But here, this, this, this idea of being arrested. Paul is on a mission to go and arrest believers, individuals who were looking to Jesus as Savior to bring them, to arrest them and to bring them back for some kind of trial. And as he is going, he is ultimately the one that gets arrested by Jesus in this passage and in this context and in his life. But again, the snapshot there in verse 1 in regards to Saul, we've already sat in the different verses that he's given his testimony into, into who he was. But the description here that we have, he is breathing in and breathing out threats. What, it, what is your breath? I mean, take a deep breath. It's, it's our life. It's something that we just do naturally as we breathe in and we breathe out. The, the source of his life, the, his life breath at this moment, the snapshot that we're given of his heart and of his mind as he's breathing in and breathing out in his daily life, what he is finding natural is this persecution, these, these threats, this violence, this murder against anybody who's looking at Jesus in faith. 
Again, as we've gone through the book of Acts so far, one of the things that really, it, it astounds me and it always stands out in my mind as a warning for me and for all of us is that Paul believes that he is doing a service to God. So in the Old Testament, Phinehas, if you remember him in Numbers chapter 25, Phinehas is this guy where the Jews have been brought out of Egypt, delivered by God, delivered out of their bondage, being brought into freedom, and the Jews are already rebelling against the Lord, and the Lord is sending a plague into the community where individuals are dying. And Phinehas takes a spear, he takes a javelin, and he kills a man and a woman. And in that scene, it says that he stops the plague because of his zeal for God. So for a Jew at this time, Phinehas, he's a hero. He is a man that demonstrates somebody who is obedient to God, who is zealous for God, who is passionate for God, and is not going to allow in the community any any rebellion against God. To the point where willing to use violence to eradicate any kind of plague. And this is what Paul is sitting in. This is what those who are hunting believers down in. They look at believers in Jesus Christ, his teaching as a plague in the community of the Jews. And as we're given this description that he is going to persecute, he is hunting down those who are of the way. And the way, this is where we get the word exodus from. The odus at the end, that's the way. Exodus is the way out. It was the way out of Egypt. It was the deliverance out of Egypt. So when we talk about believers of the way, Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. This is an early title, an early description of what believers, you know, we go by Christians, we're followers of the Christ, we're followers of Jesus. Here it's, they're followers of the way, his way, his path, his life, his nature, his character, his truth. Again, the warning in all of this is we will often follow Jesus in a way that is not his way, in a way that is not based upon truth. It's not based upon God's perspective. It's not based upon his word. It's based upon the influence of culture. It's based upon the dictates, perspective, and opinions of our own heart. And ultimately, what I'm trying to bring about is they are traveling and they're drawing near to Damascus. We have this sudden event where this light is shining around Paul and around the others. Uh, In chapters 22 and 26, not only did Paul fall to the ground, we're told that everybody that is with him, everybody fell to the ground. He hears this voice, right? They see the light, they hear this voice. And out of Jesus' mouth to Paul, and again, if I always say Paul rather than Saul, Saul just kind of, anyways, Y'all know what I'm saying? Saul and Paul are the same guy, Hebrew name, Greek name. So Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We want to sit in this question, why? How many of you guys have little kids? Or how many of you remember little kids always asking the question, why? Like, um, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why is the sun, why is the sun bright? Why is the sky blue? Just all these questions. Often when we're asked questions why, we give very uh, surface answers. In our life, uh, 
why do you do what you do? You know, why did you do what you did this morning when you got up? Why do you do what you do for work? Why do you have a relationship with the Again, there's, there's very surface answers to the question why, and then there's very deep answers as we dig in and dive. Um, the question why can be very easy and simple, and it can be very painful. As Jesus is revealing himself, unveiling himself to Paul in this moment. Later on, the testimony that Paul gives us is that he saw Jesus. The others that are with him, they did not see Jesus. They did not hear his voice with understanding. They saw a light. They heard a voice, but without understanding. The testimony is that Paul sees the glorified, resurrected Jesus that has just unveiled himself. And the question that he asked to Saul, it begins with this, why? In this relationship that we have with Jesus, often we answer this question in very simple, unthinking um, Lack of depth responses. So, for instance, it's why are you angry? Why are you anxious? Why are you proud? Why is your marriage bad? Why is your marriage good? Why is your child rebelling? Why are you rebelling? Why do you fear? Why do you judge? Why... Again, we can throw every single thing that I just rattle off, you can throw out a really simple answer to. But as we have relationship with Jesus and as we have relationship with other individuals, why actually becomes a really complicated answer. You have who God has created you to be. You have your life experiences. The things that you want to know now about the Lord, about your own behavior, um, being able to understand why you respond to certain stimuluses, the way that you respond in your life. There's a, there's a lot of depth to answering those questions. When Jesus comes and asks the question of Paul, and when the question gets asked of us by the Lord, he's not searching for information. What he's trying to do is draw information out of us. For Paul in this moment, it's why are you persecuting me? Paul thinks that he is zealously serving God and that he is persecuting, that he is hunting those who are in rebellion against God. And Jesus is answering this question, and it's, it's, it's enlightening. Why are you persecuting? Why are you hunting me? You think that you're hunting human beings. This is, this is revelatory in regards to who Jesus is and how he identifies himself with you as an individual and with us corporately. As you are being hunted, whether it's, whether it's demon, whether it's the world, whether it's a, a known relationship, an unknown relationship, why you are being ostracized or whatever that may look like, why you are being hunted for your relationship with Jesus, Jesus, it's, he takes personal ownership of you. That what you are experiencing, your sadness, your pain, your hurts, your trials, your tribulations, he is right there choosing to identify himself with you in the midst of those experiences. And the why questions, why are you angry? Why are you rebellious? Why don't you do the things that you want to do? 
Why do you do those things that you don't want to do? You're right. We can all sit with Paul in Romans 7. And then we can all sit with Paul and praise God that he sent Jesus Christ to save us out of all of our wretchedness, out of all of our thought. And this is what he is doing as he is revealing himself to Paul. This man who is a murderer, this man who is a blasphemer, this man who is doing damage to human beings. Jesus says, the damage that you are doing, you are doing to me. These people, they are my people. I am one with them, and they are one with me. And and again, in the simplicity of this passage, this exposes God's heart to you. That in every nuance of your life, our Lord is there. In every pain, every pain, every hurt, every challenge, that you are personally processing through. He is there as Lord, as Savior, as healer, as God, as all that he is. He is that attentive to every aspect of our life. Saul, why? And his question, there's two questions that Paul responds with, right? First one is, who are you, Lord? And again, the Lord there, it's just, it's sir. It's not, he's not looking to Jesus as savior yet. He has just had a very supernatural experience. He is in the midst of this supernatural experience. And his question is, who are you, Lord? He's looking for the identification of the source of what's going on in his life. And again, he's not a stupid man. So obviously he knows that this is something of God. But for us in our relationship with Jesus, this this is the question that we need to answer every single day. This is the question that we need to hunt every single day, pursue every single day, and seek his answers for every day. Who is Jesus? We pray almost every single weekend out of Ephesians chapter 3, it says... We are asking God that we would be strengthened, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that he is the one that is rooted and grounded us in love. And we are asking that he would give us the ability to comprehend, not just individually, but with all the saints, what is the width and length and height and depth, that we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Our, our daily yearning is, God, I want to know you. I want to know your mind. I recognize where I'm off. I recognize that I have a limited perspective in all things. Lord, I want your perspective in this circumstance. Lord, I don't need to judge this person, but if you are allowing me to interact with them, show me how to be a physician. If I'm seeing something that's wrong, if I'm seeing a sickness that's going on, Lord, ultimately the healing only comes from you. I don't need to be this person's judge. I don't need to be puffed up in my pride. I don't need to be right. Lord, I need your understanding. I need your perspective. I need to know your heart. Why is it that Jesus is so compassionate to every single human being? 
How is it that Jesus can, can just so easily reach out and touch somebody who is sick and who is diseased? How is it that he can... Uh, you know, where all the, the ooze of life, like I want nothing to do with that behavior. I want nothing to do with anybody who does anything along those lines. How is it that Jesus so easily steps in with himself, with compassion, with truth, with rebuke as necessary? Do you not, wanna, do you not want to know your father who created you the way that the son knew and knows the father? We're told that throughout his life, as Jesus is living as a man, sinless in his perfection, that he didn't do anything and say anything that was not according to his Father's will. Again, none of us attain sinless perfection. We're going to end in that verse in Philippians 3. So we'll get there eventually. So none of us are perfect. This has nothing to do with striving and, and guilt or condemnation or anything like that. This just has everything to do with the hunger of my own heart. I am satisfied when I'm worshiping the Lord. I am greatly satisfied when I know that I am walking in step with the Lord in the moment. I am greatly satisfied in the Lord when I get to let go of my anger and just humble myself and esteem the other person's opinion and life is greater than my own. Not because they're right, not because I'm wrong, but just to have that expression of love, of patience, of not being judgmental. And these, these answers, they only come about through the pursuit of the question, who are you, Jesus? The, we can sit in, as, as Paul is a religious man here and he is pursuing violence, we can sit in the violence of, of people who believe that they're serving God, people who believe that they know Jesus, who are out of their mouth and their actions are pouring forth things that have nothing to do with, he, with who he is. And we condemn those actions. We condemn that kind of history justifiably because that heart is not of God. We can say with um, when uh, James and John, the, the Samaritans, are not allowing Jesus to come and stay in the village as they're, as they're heading for Jerusalem and James and John want to call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. What does Jesus tell them? You don't even understand the thoughts of your heart. You don't know the source of your heart. I didn't come to condemn these people. I came to save these people. And this isn't so that we can be taken advantage of. This isn't so that we can um, exalt ourselves over others. It's just this honest question and the pursuit of this answer ought to occur in our lives on a daily basis. Jesus, who are you? Because out of that, out of that foundation of how we answer who he is, if it's based upon his truth, if it's based upon his spirit in us, he is going to lead us into right action in our lives. 
He's going to lead us to the, the reconciliation that we need in different relationships. He's going to lead us faithfully in the task that he desires to bring about in our lives for his glory's sake. Whatever that work may be that uh, he wants to lay your hand on, as you follow him, as you answer that question about who he is, there's a trust and a hope and a confidence that he's going to lead you in the way, in his righteousness, for his glory, day by day in simplicity. And that is where freedom is found. It's not found in all these other religious behaviors. It's found in the, re the, the knowledge and the understanding of the depth of his love. His grace, what has he given to you? Not just life, not just salvation. He's given to you his, his very self. The spirit of God, father, son, spirit dwells in us. He has given to us his righteousness. He's declared us to be justified as though we have never sinned because he died for every single one of our criminal acts. Those things that we deserve to be arrested for, judged for, and punished for. Jesus died for those things. We're just saying that death was arrested. Death is the one that's been done away with. We are the recipients of his love and his grace. We sit in this knowledge of what, what punishment what protection has God offered to you in your life through his mercy? I can't, I, I'm astounded and awed at all the ways that God has protected me just in, just in his mercy. Simple things, big things. Who are you, Lord? As God declares his name to Moses, God is gracious, God is kind, God is compassionate, God is patient, God is a judge. God has provided salvation, God has provided freedom, God is love, God is power, he's the source. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's the king, he's the Lord, he's the master. Who is this Lord? Jesus, just simply, I am Jesus. Paul doesn't need any further definition. He doesn't need, is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is this Jesus of Jerusalem? It's, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. The, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, it's, it's in the, I think it's in chapter 22. So this, this account is repeated in chapter 22 and chapter 26. Most of the manuscripts, it's not in chapter 9, but believe that it was added from the others. But this whole idea, the, this, a goad is a stick that a, those who are plowing with oxen, you're trying to get an animal to remove to move in a certain direction and to be obedient, you would have this sharp pointed stick that's gonna get through its thick hide to encourage it to obey your instructions. When you get stuck in the back by a sharp object, what are you gonna do? You're gonna swing, you're gonna kick. So this kicking against the goads is 
you as an individual, Paul, and us, we are acting in a way that is obstinate and stubborn and rebellious to the authority that is leading us. And the rebellion that we have is causing self-harm. So the goad in an animal is moving the animal in a direction. And to prevent it, to teach it not to kick back, there would be more sharp pieces of wood to train the animal not to kick when it is goaded in a direction. So the idea is that Paul, in his life, Jesus has been sticking him, moving him in a direction. And Paul has been kicking in a way that he is harming himself and that he is harming other people. That's what it means. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Paul's mind in his heart is being pricked in regards to who Jesus Christ is and the violence that he has been doing. But in his obstinacy, in his zeal, because he thinks he is obeying God, he continues to do the wrong action. Rather than, in regards to those pricks where he has been uh, confronted in his mind, in his heart, in his life, as he is persecuting believers, as they are bearing testimony in regards to who Jesus Christ is, Paul is running out of arguments. And he's getting mad, and he's getting frustrated, and he's not pausing in his life and submitting himself to the Lord. He's kicking in rebellion. And that kicking that he's doing is causing himself harm and those around him harm. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And then it says what? He is terrified. If Jesus Christ were to reveal himself in his glory to each one of us in this room right now, it would not be a moment of where we're all gazing and ooing and eyeing. Every single one of us would be on the ground in fear and trembling in the presence of this being who has created us. When Jesus, when God shows up in the life of individuals in the word of God, they are all on the ground. What happens when Isaiah sees his glory? Woe is me, I am undone. What happens when Jesus reveals himself to John in the book of Revelation? He falls on the ground as dead. What happens to Daniel when the Lord sends a messenger of the Lord to him? He's on the ground in weakness because we have nothing in us of ourselves that can exalt ourselves in his presence. If he were to manifest himself, if he were to confront us. And this is, again, this is, where, this is the reality of where we need to sit in, in our relationship with God. Like God's not our bro. He's not our homie. He's, yes, he's our friend. We have all these different definitions. But think of the magnitude and the power of this being who is God. I, I, am, I am in awe every time I think about that he spoke this entire creation into existence. We sit in modern science and how crazy smart God is blows my mind. 
in the grandeur and the, the vastness of this universe, in, the, in all the small, the microscopic, the, how complex everything is. His genius, it is mind-blowing when we sit in just the, the little snapshots of what we get in regards to the complexity of his creation. Who is Jesus? He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Who is Jesus? He's the creator of the universe that became just like us. And when he became like us, he didn't show up like full manhood and all the authority. He showed up as a babe in a cave, born into poverty, knew what it was like to get sick and to stub his toe and all these kinds of life experiences that we go through. And he lived in this sinless perfection so that his life would be the offering for, again, our crimes. All of the acts that, again, God's law, right? He has a law. When you violate a law, that makes you a criminal. You are subject to arrest. You are now going to go before a judge. What is your defense? There There is no defense. I'm wrong. And again, then we sit in this. This is Jesus. This is who he is. He confronts each one of us in all the different areas of our personal individual rebellion against him. So as we are in our relationship with him, if we're willing to sit and to read, to listen, to converse with him, he's going to ask us questions of why. And then he's going to draw his truth out of us. He's going to draw confession out of us. And he doesn't draw it out in a way where he's sticking his finger in our chest. He's drawn it in a way, he's asking these questions of why so that we would know and understand who he is so that we'd have a relationship with him and just be madly in love with him. And that as we're madly in love with him, he corrects us, he changes us, he transforms us, he redeems us. We become the recipients of his incredible grace. We sit in these moments where we are, we're trembling at his nature and his character. We are astonished when he reveals himself to us. We're astonished and we just see who he is on the pages of his word. And as we watch him interact in other people's lives... But it's after, and it's in this order, after we answer the question about who Jesus is, then it's, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because if you ask the question, what do you want me to do, without having Jesus as the foundation, that's what Paul is guilty of in this circumstance. Lord, what do you want me to do against these Christians? And he's come up with an answer. But now Jesus has just revealed himself to him. He's just been confronted with his sin. He probably wants to puke. He's killed people. He's caused people to blaspheme. The people that he has hunted, the one that has just revealed himself, those are mine. And not only they're mine, they're one with me. Have you ever been caught in that kind of action? 
May God bring about that kind of sensitivity in our relationship with him that as we rail against one another in judgment, that we'd understand that we're bashing Jesus. Have you ever said an unkind word, unkind judgment about me? Any of my teachings? Any of my decisions? I've been in your shoes. I bash pastors all the time. God, that guy's an idiot. I could teach that so much better. Why did he make that decision? Doesn't he see, you know, again, we have our perspectives. We sit as judge all the time. We skewer people with our mouths and our hearts all the time. And not just people, Jesus' people. God is gracious with us. Amen? So because you know him, his spirit in us is what is enabling us to be gracious with one another when we offend each other. And we offend each other. More often than not, within a community like this, the offenses that we have with one another, it's lack of perspective. Sometimes there's malicious sin going on, malicious sin, outright sin, outright rebellion. The Bible is very clear on how we address those things. We go to each other in love. We go to each other in private. We have conversations. We open up the word, his counsel. We pray together. Who are you, Lord? And that question now enables us to fulfill the mission that he has for our life. Lord, what do you want me to do? In this circumstance, this is, this is day one for Paul where he is going to be instructed in and revealed to the, the mission that Jesus has for his life. But in this, and often, more often than not, as a matter of fact, Jesus is just giving us the next step. Jesus' response to Paul here is get up, go into the city, and then you're going to be told what you must do. And this is what I do love about our relationship with the Lord. When he leads us on his way, on his path, this is, this is how you can, this is a test on how you can know how you can test the spirits. Is this of me? Is this of the Lord? He is going to bring about the circumstances in your life where you cannot turn this way and you cannot turn that way. All you can do is follow him. Or if you have the option to turn, he is going to give you that kind of confidence and that kind of conviction that if you don't do what you are being directed to do, you know in your heart of hearts that you're going to be in rebellion against God, kicking against the goads. And you know that your lack of obedience is going to cause harm in your life and the lives that he allows you to influence. Worship team, come on up. Everybody else turn to Philippians chapter 3. The reason why we're turning here in Philippians is this gives us an overall snapshot of what's going on in Paul's life 
here in, in Acts, what was going on before, what he's processing through in regards to answering this question of who are you, Lord? Direction above, it's also, it's also answering that question of, of how we move forward in him. So chapter three of Philippians, we're gonna read through this without comments, and then we're gonna jump right into rejoicing in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious. But for you, it's safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, and here, here it is, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What a statement. Verse 7, look at this. But what things were gained to me on this day that we just read in Acts, what things that Paul considered gained to him, these he has counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, listen to the passion of that. And may this be your passion. Consider all things lost. For what? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. That I may gain profit in Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. But that, the righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, which is from God by faith. That I may know him. That I may know the power of his resurrection. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. And that word is literally, I persecute. I press on. I'm not persecuting Jesus. I am hunting after Jesus for him. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And again, in Paul's mind, he is going back to this day that we just read through. That is the day that Jesus laid hold of him. Brethren, I do not consider myself to have apprehended but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you, even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the work, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Let us rejoice in the Lord.